Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hey, everybody. Firstly, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening to these podcast episodes. The feedback has been amazing, and I'm really enjoying putting them out there. So thank you. Thank you for being part of it. My guest today is Kurt Reinhardt. Kurt is a decision scientist. What the hell is that, you might ask? Great question. A decision scientist is somebody who uses data analytics to help companies or organizations, and in this case, because we're talking about individual human performance, we're talking about how individuals can make better decisions. And Kurt is an AI specialist. He works at this amazing, cool company called Section.io. And Kurt is a data analytics guy by trade, comes from an ecology background, and he's got a PhD in ecology. And he's just a super cool cat. And I hope you enjoy this episode. So, Kurt, how are you, mate? Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, you and I have spent a lot of time in nature together, and you know we've been hiking in the backcountry in the in the middle of winter and backcountry skiing. And when you see a footprint, an animal footprint, or something about nature that that is you know unique or rare or a great example, you get so excited, like a kid at Christmas time. Where did this love of of nature come from? I don't know. It's just always been a part of my life. And, uh, you know, I, I remember I still have a book on a bookshelf here near me that it's an encyclopedia of mammals of the world. And my parents gave that to me for Christmas when I was seven years old. And I can still distinctly remember just sitting down and reading this thing over and over, cover to cover. So I don't remember a time when I wasn't really excited about that stuff. And I feel real, very fortunate that over these many years that I've uh, been alive, that I've had lots of opportunities to sort of go in deeper and to explore that and to cultivate that passion and just deepen my knowledge. And at the same time, that has uh, deepened my appreciation and my love of wild things and wild places. That's so awesome. So how did you then turn that into, I guess, a, the, the start of a profession? Because you are a decision scientist, and I want to understand what that means more. But I mean, how did you take your love of, of nature and ecology and animals into into a career track that you know where now you're dealing with AI and complex modeling and decision science yeah it was sort of uh it was a fun journey but you know uh, in the classic sense it I didn't end up where I thought I would and you know I started when I was younger just sort of knocking about doing whatever jobs I 
that that childhood love of nature and wildlife that I'd had just was still with me. And I was now at a point in my life, this was post-university and sort of working odd jobs. I, I had a lot of energy. I had a lot of time. And I started really pouring that into spending time in the backcountry and learning more and more, learning all the plants, learning all the trees, learning the birds, all this. And I really became passionate about wildlife tracking. And so I'd spend weeks at a time in the backcountry just looking for tracks and sign for everything that I could find and then trying to decode what it was. And eventually I'd been doing that for a while. And, I, and so I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'll be a wildlife biologist. So I started volunteering and working on some wildlife field projects, often surveying animals by their tracks, like a lot of mountain lion surveys and bobcat surveys and stuff like that. They'll survey for tracks. And so I, I was doing that. And uh, at the same time, there's a, there's a piece of me that is always trying to understand kind of the way I think of it is the story behind the story. And that's one of the things that's fun about tracking is you, you can you have a window into the story that's invisible to most people most of the time. But I kept wanting to know more about the wildlife and populations and conservation, that sort of thing. And so that led me to go to graduate school and I got a master's degree in wildlife management. But the curious thing about that was at that time, my wife was working full time and we had just started a family. And so I went into that program thinking I was going to be the guy who would spend all his time out in the field, you know, capturing animals with his bare hands and that sort of thing. But <laughs> it was uh, that wasn't in the cards at that time. And so I needed to stick close to home. I needed to be around. And I also have a little bit of an aptitude for numbers and things. So so I ended up finding some folks in the department who had lots of data, but didn't have anybody to analyze the data. And so I focused on statistics and analytics, and I wrote a master's degree based on other people's data. And then I was invited to come back for a PhD to do a program because <laughs> nobody else wanted to do this particular PhD job because it had no field time at all. There was no data collection. But instead, what we did is we designed and built databases, and we wrote software to analyze the data in there. So I wrote a dissertation on black bear population estimation and habitat estimation and mapping and things, and got this deeper exposure to the technology side of things. And so at that point, I had just started to move down this other path. And I think what's on a real personal level, one of the things that I've reflected on a lot is that, you know, a lot of people are motivated by these sort of big picture concerns, you know, like particularly in wildlife, you know, they're really motivated to want to conserve wildlife and things. But I sort of reached a point in my life where I had immersed myself in wildlife for so long and I feel, and this is maybe a cop-out, but I also, I feel that it's so much a part of who I am and, and my life that I didn't necessarily feel that I had to choose that as my job anymore. And in fact, I felt that the most natural thing for me to do was to just keep going in this direction and keep going down this path of exploring complex problems and trying to find out what's happening in the middle of a bunch of noise and variability and uncertainty. And so still just looking for that story behind the story, so to speak. And that's what led me as I got out of my PhD 
program to go into consulting and start to get involved across a wide range of different venues, public health and commercial industry and all this other stuff where where people are just grappling with complexity and uncertainty. And it turns out that that's a really comfortable place for my skills and sort of my interests. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. And I I just, I really, really love what I do. That's so awesome. And so what the hell is a decision scientist? (laughs) That's a good question. So a decision scientist is someone who has a set of skills or perspectives specifically tailored to tackling the pain point of a decision. And you think you can imagine that in a lot of business settings, for example, there's a certain amount of analytical information that managers may want, you know, and they may be able to say, well, tell me what's happening in this department or what happened over the last quarter. And I'm going to look at those numbers and I'm going to make a plan for the next quarter. And so that's a pretty clear analytics situation. But what a decision scientist can do is look at that and say, okay, that all sounds like a good plan, but what exactly is the decision that you're going to make about your plans for the next quarter? What options are available to you? Which options are amenable to the information that you have available in a way where you can discern the good from the bad? And so a decision scientist delivers a lot of value in helping frame that threshold between what we know about the past and what we have to decide about the future and to try to build a structure around that decision and then bring as much information as possible to bear so that people can make good decisions. Because often there's more attention given to looking back at the past than there is to actually thinking about what's the most critical decision that needs to be made right now. Yeah, right. And so how at like a human level, an individual level, less about, you know, business and quarterly reports, et cetera. How do we all become our own decision scientists and make better decisions? Because we kind of suck, right? I mean, human yeah. bias <laughs> human bias is is pretty pretty debilitating. You know, maybe you can dig into that a little bit as well about why why we perhaps aren't the great decision makers that we many of us think we are. Yeah. So There's a lot there. Biases are definitely a problem. And then also, I think expectations can be a problem. You know, so in terms of biases, there are many that people have identified. You know, there's sort of field guides, so to speak, of all these different biases. And there's some famous work by two gentlemen named Kahneman and Tversky about the biases that people bring to decision-making. And Daniel Kahneman has a book out recently called Thinking Fast and Slow that addresses a lot of that. You know, one that I think about a lot right now is called the availability bias. And the availability bias is just where your worldview or your view of the situation that you're in is overly influenced by the information that just happened to be available. This is, I think, a critical bias right now because, well, I think it probably always has been in human experience, but now we have so much information that's available to us, and it's coming at us in a decidedly non-random way. You know, on the one hand, you have the Facebooks and the like who have algorithms that help them just determine what they want to, what information they're going to 
surface in front of your eyes. But we also have our own friends and family and that sort of thing. And we're all sort of engaged in these personal and social dynamics that lead us to filter and promote information in various ways. And all those ways are decidedly different than the way that we would think about a scientist doing something. You know, we wouldn't want a scientist to go out and just sort of randomly hand out some new medications and then maybe just wait to see if anybody called them up to complain. And then and then they would use that as the basis for saying this new medication is safe. You know, so we recognize that um, there are certain rigorous ways to go about that. But we as people are just swimming in this soup of information. And if you just took a scan of the headlines, you walk away with a certain view of the world. And typically that view is, in my estimation, quite pessimistic. But it's just because, you know, car accidents and things like that make better headlines than just the normal day-to-day stuff that actually ends up ends up, I think, being more hopeful and more enriching overall. So so there's definitely some problems with biases that way. I think the other thing is expectations. And that's sometimes people think that making a good decision means that you get what you want. The reality is you can make a good decision and you don't always end up getting what you want. And so I think that makes it hard for people to become good decision makers on their own because the feedback has a lot of randomness in it. What I mean by that is you can make the very best decision based on the information that's available, and yet the outcome may still be determined by a lot of random chance. And so even if you buy a lottery ticket and you win the lottery, buying a lottery ticket is usually not a good idea because the odds are so low that it's going to pay off. You'd be better off using that money for something else. Now, somebody's going to win. We know that. But whether you win or lose isn't really the measure of the good decision. The good decision is measured by what did you base that decision on and how how did you prepare for it at the moment. But then once you make that decision, you're stepping over the threshold into the future. And now you just kind of, you get what's coming, you know? Right. So on the on the future, because things just seem to be changing so fast, and and when things are moving fast into an unknown world, everything's opaque. You know, it's there's we can't see five feet in front of us because because we don't really know what the world's going to look like tomorrow, and that seems to be happening kind of faster and faster. How do we, as humans, make decisions in a rapidly changing world? Yeah, well, you know, I think the first thing I think about when you when you ask that question is that humans making decisions are we're occupying lots of different roles. And so we're making decisions, different types of decisions in sort of different decision domains. And so I have a very different decision-making process for my family and personal decisions. Well, for my family, for my personal decisions, I'm still kind of the scientific about it, but um, (laughs) (laughs) much, much to everyone else's annoyance. But in the business place, so in a commercial environment or, or any of these other sort of more technical environments where we're talking about actual measurable digital information and things like that, You know, I think the trend there is to just start to leverage the tools that can operate at the pace that the information is coming in. And then, you know, on the flip side, and this is more my personal philosophy, is is outside of those more technical environments, like in a more personal one, I think it's really important 
to discipline yourself against some of your biases, like the availability bias, and really look for a more durable, robust ground to stand on and to recognize that maybe your decision-making and your behaviors don't have to be matching some cadence of the information flow. Maybe they need to be based on things that turn over at a much slower rate. And I think there's a blending point in there around principles and the principles that one uses to guide one's life and the principles that one uses to guide and build one's business. And to what extent can those things be kind of slow burn to give you a solid basis from which then you can look out at the world and and kind of process that information, but not necessarily become enslaved to it. That's really so. So this sounds like this slow thinking, fast thinking. So tell me about that because I'm not sure. I think my fast thinking, fast decision thing is kind of overgrown and my slow thinking element is probably vastly undernourished. So <laughs> how, what is this fast thinking, slow thinking and how, how do we get a balance of the two? Yeah. Well, balance is always hard, obviously. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So I'm trying to, trying to get them in order. I, you know, coming, coming back to the issue about some of our biases and some, some of the weaknesses built into our process for addressing new situations and making decisions. You know, there's there's been some research that looks at kind of gut level decisions, literally. And unfortunately, I don't have any good citations for you. So I might be totally making this up based on this could be me altering my memory to serve my purpose here, which is another bias. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just intro it with Dr. Reinhardt said, and that'll give you a little bit <laughs> of authority that will allow you to speak smoothly but, and factually. So people who are highly trained in a specific skill can often report that that gut feeling that they have is sort of a guide for them. And so there's one theory that your gut feeling is just your body and your mind are processing really complex assessments and complex reasoning and complex patterns and habits in order to come up with, to make a decision. And a lot of that processing is nonverbal. And and so your gut can be a guide to some of this stuff. And so this is where, you know, folks like my wife do a lot of work with people to get them to start to pay attention more to some of these internal bodily signals that they have that can be connected to actual complex processing experience and skill training and that sort of stuff. And so that's a case where confronting a decision, you could call it just a gut level thing. And some people want to take that to mean that it's just a quick snap decision. But there's also a part where if you can slow down and you can quiet yourself down, you can assess that and kind of get a feel for what your gut's telling you. Now, I don't typically recommend that too strongly to people because I think the difficulty is that that gut check can be a a good tool along with other tools and also in cases where you have lots of experience and training. It's not perfect by any means. On the other hand... We have strong gut reactions to things that we don't have experience, training, or comprehension about. Instead, those are some of our just built-in habits coming out. 
And so there are a lot of times when you might have a really strong gut reaction to something. And if you just operate on that thing uncritically, you often are doing exactly the wrong thing in that situation. You know, a lot of times people have their own fears and insecurities. And so there's a tendency maybe to pull back when it would be entirely appropriate for them to take another step forward or vice versa. And so to me, the fast and the slow thing is less about how am I going to make this given decision, but it's more about, for me, the slow part is trying to establish a framework or some system or some collection of things that I feel confident about, familiar enough, and excited about to think that I can build from this to help me understand how to make this decision. That, I think, really gets to it gets to one of the things that's hard in business because at its core, those are human values. And those are decisions that you're making about who you are, what you care about, what you want to be in this world, and, and the kind of problems you want to address in the world, right? And so for me, that's a slow process. And that's a quiet process. And that's something that just accretes slowly over time. But I think the stronger that is, the better developed that is, then the better attuned you can get to making maybe these higher cadence decisions, because now you have a place to put them. You have a way to interpret the world. You're also a little bit more engaged in understanding about some of your own weaknesses and some of your own biases and things like that. So, you know, I think I think a lot of that's personal. And then a lot of that in business is organizational, you know, making sure that there's a good team and that there's a good flow and practice around decision making so that people can stay really committed to the higher objective and trying to count for and accommodate what their own limitations are in that in that decision setting. Sounds hard. Yeah. <laughs> it is but that's part of the role of the decision scientist is to come in and uh, try and frame some of those things up. So just a I know none of my stories are quick, but a relatively quick one is um, back when I was doing my doctoral work, I was working with a group of folks and we would we would sort of workshop these complicated concert wildlife and natural resource conservation problems. And they were complicated because there would typically be a group of different stakeholders that maybe had different interests and desires in that situation. And there was lots and lots of uncertainty. That's one of the great things about studying wildlife and ecology is there's so much uncertainty when you're dealing with actual creatures out there in the world because we know so little very specific information about them in most cases. So, so these folks had had this one problem they were struggling to solve and they'd been They've been kind of struggling with this for years, but when they came to our workshop and we were able to sit down and draw out of everybody what they wanted and what they thought the obstacles were, we built a very simple, just a spreadsheet-based model that where we said, okay, these are all the things that you want. And these are the things that you're concerned about. Let's start to put some numbers on them. You know, how much time does it take and how much dollars does it take and how much vegetation is going to get trampled when people come out to survey for this butterfly and all these things. Once we were able to actually put it down and put numbers on things and look at it, 
suddenly the decision became very easy for them to do. And so after just a couple of days of working on it, up until then, they'd been like the the blind people and the elephant. You know, they've been feeling their way around a problem, but never able to grasp it in its entirety. And so, what we were able to do is to help. I'm sorry. Show, I'm sorry. Can you? What, what's the blind man and the, oh, and the elephant okay. thing? Because that sounds fascinating. <laughs> so there's just there's a story. Who know, I I have no idea where it came from, but a group of blind men who all encounter an elephant. And so the first blind man walks up and he, you know, he's touching the tail of the elephant and he says, oh, an elephant is like a paintbrush. And then another blind man is on the front side and he feels the trunk and he says, no, 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 no. An elephant is like a snake and, and so on and so forth. Each of these individuals is perceiving only a tiny bit of the whole thing that is an elephant. And so if you were to take information from any one of them, you wouldn't have any clue what an elephant is. And when you put that all together, you still don't really have a clue because nobody was able to put the whole picture together. And so if I in the- it just describes much of the problem with our society. That was very well, succinct. I agree because, but the world is big and it's where the analogy with the elephant breaks down is it's possible for one person to actually take a step back if they're not blind and see an elephant. And we have other ways to describe it, but the world is too big for that. And so we're constantly playing that game of saying, oh, this is the deal or that's the deal. You know, and just think of the number of times you've been in a conversation and somebody says, well, here's how it is, you know, or it's like this. (laughs) And, um, you know, that's a that's a good opportunity to just calm down and listen because you can be well assured that they might be describing some actual thing that's a part of it, but that's never going to be the way it is. I love that. I really love that. Okay, so we've, we've got all that. We're, we're blind people uh, touching elephant tails and trunks, and now we're back counting butterflies. So Counting butterflies. So the situation was, is, you know, we were talking about sort of doing the slow work to be prepared to make decisions and then having to make the decision at whatever pace is appropriate there. But having, not necessarily a decision scientist, but an appreciation of decision-making as a unique and special thing and decisions as this unique and special thing in the world can help you build a more coherent, holistic view of the decision. And when you do that, you can see more of it at once. And when you can see more of it, you have a much better chance of actually making a good decision. You know, you're not making a decision based on your assumption that an elephant is like a snake. Instead, you're able to sort of try to absorb as much of that whole thing as possible, and then you can make your decision. And so with this, and and I saw this repeatedly in this workshop format where we're able, and we saw that as our job, is to just try to paint the picture of the whole thing so everybody can see the same thing at the same time. And when they did, making the decision then just became a pretty mechanical process because then you you can literally just weigh the pros and the cons and you can measure the trade-offs and you can say can we all live with this or not and then and now you have something to talk about something coherent and you're talking about the same thing and so then you can get a decision that has a lot of consensus has a lot of buy-in and 
has a lot high probability of success. Not a guarantee, but a high probability. Right, right. So as you sort of talk you through that, I'm, I'm imagining how to apply it. And even in my own personal life, just I don't think I've ever sat down and thought, okay, this is how I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to make it faster. I'm going to make it slow. I'm going to make it by myself or I'm going to bring other people. Like a lot of those things happen, but I don't think I ever sit down and think, okay, for this particular decision, this is the framework I'm going to use to solve it. And I think that could be pretty powerful. Yeah, it can be. I mean, I think, you know, ideally maybe we would have a good rigorous framework like that, but uh, for everything, but clearly so many of the decisions we make, we just have to make them kind of on the fly or whatever. But, you know, I think what I recommend for people across the board, whatever the decision is, is it's it's really what makes decision making hard is that you have to make a choice, right? If there's only one path, then there's no decision. So you have at least two alternatives. And then those alternatives are, they conflict or what you gain from each potential, each path that you might take is a conflicting set of pros and cons because every decision involves a trade-off, right? So what I try and do and what I recommend to people, whether it's business or personal life, is you start off thinking about what are your values? What are the things that you want out of this moment? You know, if you're choosing a new car or your children are choosing which college to go to or, you know, what are you trying to figure out whether to launch a new product line in your business, you can identify what the values are. And uh, usually in a lot of business cases, it's easier, at least for tactical decisions, for strategic decisions in business. I don't think it's any, necessarily any easier than it is in our personal lives. But you identify those values and then you start to interrogate your options and try to gather some information about them such as you can along those same dimensions, right? So if I want to buy a new car and I really, really hate having to pay the mechanic or do maintenance or anything, you know, that that's the kind of thing that suggests you place a higher value on getting a brand new car rather than a real old car. But at the same time, you don't want to spend too much money. You want to keep the overall cost down. So now you have these competing things where you could have the easier deal if you buy a brand new car, have no maintenance, or you could have a worse deal. Or you could save money by buying the cheaper car, but then you have to deal with maintenance, you know. But when you can now break it out according to those values a little bit, well, you can gather some more. You can at least hazard a guess, if not gather more information about that. You know, how much is that maintenance going to cost in time and money? How much is that brand new car going to cost relative to the used one? And, and so now you're not trying to grapple with the whole decision itself. You're just trying to focus and say, okay, what's the actual dollar value difference here between these two options on the, you know, in terms of these values that I have. And a lot of times, and so this is sort of, it's kind of the fun part, kind of the magic of this sort of thing in, in a sense. You know, we were talking earlier about the blind man and the elephant. You have to describe your decision in a, in a big picture so that you can try to see the whole thing all at once. But then 
I think what people run into is they try to understand the whole problem all at once. But really, the only way you can really make progress on that is you have to drill into those details and you have to pick just one little piece of it at a time. So so then you actually go back into the mode of saying, OK, let's look at just the trunk or let's look at just the tail or the ear, that sort of thing. And then and so you're constantly having to step back and take the big picture, but then step forward and get some more detail. Now you step back and see how that fits in. And, you know, it doesn't have for buying a new car or something, it doesn't have to be a long process or even really explicit, but you want to be able almost to balance these two views against one another so that you understand globally what you're up against. But then you have some specific information about these things so that you're not operating just on your gut feel for it. You know, for example, my wife and I, in a case like that, she would be much more prone to want to avoid the maintenance hassles. And I'd be much more prone to want to buy the cheaper car, you know, and just on each of us at the gut level, have an immediate bias to go to different ends of that spectrum. But if we can talk about it, we can kind of sort that stuff out and realize that's where we're inclined to go. Then we can start to build a little bit better picture of that decision. That's awesome. So we're winding up information and I'm coming back to the elephant and the blind man because there's nothing because well, I like it, but there's nothing more like the parallel to that and something as epic as, you know, climate change or a climate crisis or, you know, humanity's you know, footprint on planet Earth. I mean, everyone is coming that, at that from a, a different perspective depending on what we click and what we like on Facebook and our, our friends and what newspapers we read and what country we live in and what sort of part of the socio-demographic kind of spectrum we live on and what industry we're in and, and blah, blah, blah. How do we work out from our own point of view or maybe our family's point of view or our business's point of view or our nation's point of view or like as a humanity, where the real problems are and how to get our hands, our arms around that so we can see the whole elephant, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's a really interesting challenge and ultimately it it transcends anything about decision making clearly it goes to kind of everything that makes up the human experience but you know i think strictly from a decision making standpoint is that i think one of the challenges individuals face these days is um often an individual can have they've already made their assessment which may be based on careful cultivation of, of their decision or or not. But um, a lot of individuals had made their assessment about what it is that should be done about climate change, for example. But there's no single decision to be made. I think the big challenge with climate change and the other big challenges that face our society are they're not necessarily something that has a decision maker who just chooses how what we're going to do. You know, if we had one ruler of the world who would make a decision about how our aggregate society was going to run, we could make that decision and then in the end we would just we would get what we get out of that, right? But instead what we're talking about here is not a single authority, but the aggregate authority of everything from the individual decisions that you and I make in our homes with our families to the decisions that businesses make, to the decisions that governments make. And so it's 
it's immersed in all the complexity of human existence. You know, so I think what I see as one of the challenges with these big social issues is as individuals, we might relate to them as if it's another decision that we make in our household. And yet it is, I think, literally the most complicated challenge that there ever could be, which is to come up with or to to even imagine an intentional change in the aggregate behavior of every person on the earth, you know? So I think, you know, and this is where it starts to move away from a decision-making standpoint, but, you know, clearly this starts to place more emphasis on our social and political institutions, you know, because those are the means by which we delegate upward decision-making and we delegate upward the authority to allocate resources and that sort of things, you know. And so those are the channels that we have to work through. And I think that no matter how important the challenge is, there's this additional struggle with us as individual human beings trying to relate to the real complexity, not even of the problem itself, but the real complexity of how do humans approach global scale problems? Because that's something that's that's quite new yeah. in our history. And, and to the extent that we have engaged global problems, we've typically engaged, you know, some people have, have used the analogy of you know, industrial mobilization for World War II as a kind of aggregate, really short-term aggregate change in human behavior. But, you know, that was, we were basically just taking the brakes off of what humans have always done, which is to just convert more resources into more stuff. So it kind of played into our strengths in a way. What we're talking about now is kind of doing something in a, going in a different direction. And I don't, I don't know there's precedent for it. I don't mean any of that to be pessimistic. I don't mean to imply that it can't be done. But, um, you know, I think one, one of the things that I've taken from the amount of time I've spent analyzing data and engaged in scientific study and the thing is I, I have a very profound appreciation for the complexity of the world, uh, the complexity of the problems that we face, and also how little we know about most of the world that we live in. We know a lot about the real hard concrete things that can be measured. And then it's very difficult to know with a great deal of certainty about some of this other stuff. Now, that's again, not to say that we have to be certain about everything in order to make a decision, but it's just my appreciation for how difficult it is to get a hundred people to chip in on something or a hundred million or, you know, billions and billions of people. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it is a big problem, but, but it's, it is. It's an opportunity as well. Too. I mean, I can imagine that you know we now have we now have technology that can link us all together, and so we've never had that before. And all the other and you know humans are great in a crisis. It brings us together, like in like in World War Two. But even that was very political based or religion based or geography based. Yeah, as you say, we've never we've never had to look at the. The whole elephant before because we were all so focused on our own little little patches whereas now all of a sudden no matter where you sit on this particular issue we have to look at the world as one one thing and we don't have systems that are built to to deal with it no we don't but it is happening you know it's not happening quickly maybe or as quick as we might like but 
you know, the word is out, so to speak, and people are engaged with the topic and there's more information available about this. And I think there's more interest in it and passion and it has helped people really identify what their values are. And I think that we're moving in that way. We're just, again, faced with this challenge of how do we suddenly decide that we want to make these fundamental changes, fundamental changes in in global society, mm. you know, and it's just, it's a big challenge. It is a big challenge. I do think that, that we're working on it. We're getting there, you know, but, you know, we shouldn't necessarily expect for, expect the solution to be easy, right. but again, we want good outcomes. You know, we want to support our values with the decisions that we make. So, so I think it's really important that we do it. And I think that it's becoming the defining characteristic of our age, you know, not just what our capacities are in order to generate and process information, but what is our capacity to actually act on mm. it? Yeah. And for what, for what purpose? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Kurt Reinhardt, that is Absolutely fascinating, mate. Is there anything that you want to kind of add before we close out? Just that uh, I'm not an expert on climate change. (laughs) 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 Somehow we ended up in a pretty big sphere there. You know, I often I often like to take the big view of a of a decision, but that was maybe bigger than I thought we were going to go. It was bigger than I thought too. But, you know, once you start with an elephant, like there's only one way we're going to go. So, <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. I guess that's true. Well, Kurt, thanks, mate. That was fantastic. And I enjoyed thinking about, you know, big, big business type kind of data science, decision science stuff, but, but it's really about, you know, how we can make better decisions ourselves as well. And that's, that's kind of what I, I, I did get. Yeah, it all comes down to values, yeah. right? I think that's where I always come back to on this. And obviously, we don't feel the exact same way about every decision that we make. But every decision we make is coming from the fabric we're constructing for who we are, you know. And so that bears some attention. So, but again, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's a fun conversation. And again, I did not expect the climate change. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. You're a <laughs> Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.